All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our first class on Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll be taking a look at that and discussing that in some depth and detail for the weeks to come. So, hope you have a uh, Bible with you, and I'll recommend a commentary or two here in this opening session. Let's begin, as we always do, with an invocation and with the Our Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Well, first off, by way of caveat, this is our 11 o'clock Thursday Bible study, which usually doesn't go into nearly as much depth and detail as our Sunday morning studies. So I do want to remind you of the scope of that, that if you're tuning in, maybe even online and thinking, well, why didn't we read this straight out of the Greek? And why didn't we parse everything? And why didn't we do a little sermon on every single word? That's why. The point of the class is really to simply say of the scriptures, What does this mean in context? And then in what ways does that apply to us in our context? So that's the simple task. Now, I will take us um, a little deeper than I usually do uh, in terms of introducing Galatians, who it's to, who these rivals are who are teaching contrary to St. Paul, And then we'll see contextually what it is that St. Paul is trying to say. Okay, we are using the Lutheran Study Bible. If you don't have one, you should get one, even if you're not Lutheran. Probably the best study Bible out there. English Standard Version we're using, it tends to be a literalistic translation on the spectrum, but while retaining some natural English elements as well. Not being overly wooden, I'm trying to say. The other resource, depending upon your interest, that you might want to pick up, and it is an investment, is the Concordia Commentary Series. This is kind of the state of the art. And this one in particular is by Andrew Das, a uh, teacher at one of our Concordias, a Ph.D. professor. And this, this book, of course, Galatians is six chapters. It's not a long book. <laughs> And uh, Galatians, in fact, we, you know, we, might, we might even consider reading it all the way through, if not today, one of the other sessions. But Galatians is uh, not long. You can get through it in a relatively short amount of time. And yet this commentary is well over 600 pages. So why on earth? And... The rationale for this is that in Western scholarship, where in many ways the scriptures have been taken out of the church and put into academia, there is a great manner of debate about the who, what, when, where, how. And the author here says, hey, this is the perfect opportunity to address these debates in a thorough and systemic way. So, if you find yourself utterly fascinated by the question of 
to whom is Paul writing? What t- precise time in the biblical timeline is Paul writing? Who has said what and proposed what, etc., in the last hundred years? This is the text for you. It's engaging. In many ways, it reads like a mystery novel, a whodunit. And why does this guy think this? And what are the merits and demerits of what he produces, etc., etc.? This is for you. If you're looking for just a simple commentary on Galatians, you don't want to get into all the detail, use your study Bible notes. They're great. They're as much as you need, frankly. If you have the ESV text in front of you, if you have the Lutheran study Bible notes, you have enough to get the general sense of just about any one of the scriptures. If you want to get fancier than that, there's other ways you can talk to me about it. Um, but it, it does kind of go from the study notes to something uh, enormous if you're looking at actually purchasing something. Now, the other thing to mention, of course, in the backdrop is that Luther famously lectured on Galatians in 1535, and it's kind of the final year he lectured on Galatians, and this is uh, recorded in two volumes, volume 26 of the American edition and volume 27 of the American edition. As you can see, Luther spends a lot of time. This first, uh, this first volume is uh, nearly, it's approaching anyway, 500 pages. And he's got another 150 pages in the next volume. But what, what's Luther up to? He's not interested in the same questions that we're interested in 500 years ago. So Luther is very interested in building off of Galatians and waxing theological on all the different ways this pertains to the Reformation. And in many respects, this reads less as a commentary. In fact, if you purchased it as a commentary, you'd probably just be a little disappointed. And much more as a seminal statement of Luther's own understanding of the doctrine of justification. So if you want to hear Luther do biblical theology, teaching the doctrine of justification, then this is, this is worth getting. If you want a commentary the way we understand it, probably not so much. Now, this has also become controversial because Luther, and he does say this repeatedly, so it requires the ability to comprehend what one is reading, which is a diminishing skill here in 21st century America. And so this has led to a lot of misreading and misunderstanding of this text. Luther will, for example, assert things like the law is abrogated, the law is put away entirely, the law is as far away from us as heaven is from earth, etc., etc. He'll even go so far as to say the law is an oppressor, the law is a tyrant, the law is evil. And that might lead one with little attention span or little reading comprehension to assume that, that Luther is saying that all we need is the gospel and that any recourse to the law or any recourse to the law other than a law that drives us to repentance and drives us to Christ would be an error. But in fact, that's not what Luther is saying. That language that I just gave to you that is in fact descriptive of things that Luther says or identical to things Luther says 
is all, according to his own words, to be understood within the context and frame of justification. Now, immediately, I hope the light bulb's going on. I hope you're familiar enough with justification to understand then how that all makes sense. We are justified by Christ alone. And so anything else inserted into the doctrine of justification is alien and should be cast out. The law should be utterly abrogated from justification. We're not justified by Christ and our fulfillment of the law. We're not justified by Christ and our good works, by Christ alone. So if you take the law and you put it inside of justification, then it is a tyrant. Then it is an evil. Then it is an oppressor and an enslaver and something that says, you must do me in order to be saved. So if we understand Luther very clearly, he's saying the law has no place in justification. Does the law have place in the Christian life? That's a different question. And guess what Luther says? Yes, the law is to be fulfilled. In fact, Christ not only forgave our sins, but gave us the Holy Spirit so that we would be made new and begin to fulfill the law. And he says that repeatedly in his lectures on Galatians. Okay, so for those of you familiar with uh, true Book of Concord, Lutheran theology, and the kind of theology that we do here at Faith Lutheran Church, you're going to see Luther in full agreement with you and wonderfully reinforcing the things that you've come to believe from the scriptures themselves. Okay? But just don't lose the forest for the trees. By and large, Luther is talking about justification. Might serve you as well if you're looking on social media and see one of these quotes from Luther. You know, the law is as far from us as the heavens are from the earth. The law is a tyrant. Anyone who teaches the law is a Judaizer, a legalist, a servant of Satan. Luther was one for extreme manners and modes of speech. Just understand that in context, Luther is always talking about the law in the article of justification. And then we can heartily agree with him. Unfortunately, on social media and so many other places, you're not told that that's the mode and the sphere in which Luther is speaking, namely this article of justification. So we can be easily misled into thinking Luther had a theology contrary to the one he quite evidently has. For what it's worth, Luther also signed on to the Book of Concord. So whatever's in the Book of Concord, Luther says, yes, that's my theology as well. Yes, please. No, please, go right ahead. um, I'm I'm puzzled. Isn't what uh, you were conveying there, because I have this son who is adamant about He's still mixing up Catholicism with Lutheranism. And it he just so annoys me. <laughs> tell me the tell me how that how the how we acquired the argument of the Catholics and the Lutherans today. Well, sure, there's no simple way to do that. But on the doctrine of justification, that is how we stand before God and on what basis does he see us as being righteous, nothing's really changed. 
Let me try to put it as simply as I can. If the question is, what is the Christian life, the whole Christian life, a Roman Catholic is going to say it's faith and good works. Guess what a Lutheran is going to say? Faith and good works. There's no disagreement. Frankly, there's no disagreement between Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Lutheranism, and probably most other conservative church bodies in terms of what is the Christian life, faith, and good works. If we change the question to what, on what basis does God justify us, on what basis are we righteous in his sight, here you're going to get divergent answers. The Roman Catholic, since that's our focus, will say, by faith in Christ and by meriting eternal salvation. So their answer to the question of how do you stand before God is faith and works. Thus purgatory, because we're all sinning much and running into the red and our good works are the black and we're trying to get back to even and so we can get into heaven and nobody dies in the black and so everybody goes to purgatory. The only people who die in the black are saints. And then all this nonsense is invented about, well, since they're in the black, they have extra, and so we can compile all that into a large bank account. And then if you give money and indulgence, then those credits of the saints can be applied to your account. And you see, now we have the system of Roman Catholicism, which you're not going to find in the New Testament scriptures, by the way. You're not going to find that form I've just described in many of the church fathers either. So Lutherans here rest on solid ground. So what is the biblical answer, the answer of the historic church, the answer of Lutheranism to that question of how do we stand justified in God's sight? On what basis does he declare us to be righteous? And the answer of St. Paul in Galatians, for example, in Romans and many other places is going to be Christ. And he's going to use different words familiar to us to describe that. For example, grace. Grace, as he will define it in Romans, is entirely apart from our works or merits. He'll also use the language of faith. And what he means by faith is faith apart from all other works. Faith that simply receives what God declares to be true in Christ Jesus for us. Okay, but these ways of thinking of grace and faith are simply ways of saying Christ alone, understood from different angles. So that is then the Lutheran contention, the contention of countless church fathers, and the contention of the scriptures. We're going to see that in particular here in Galatians, that we are justified or righteous in God's sight on the basis of Christ alone. We even kind of get this language of um, by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Just all different aspects of the same thing. Namely, that there's nothing within us that makes us worthy to be saved. Nobody gets to go up to heaven and say, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this other man. You remember that parable? I don't do any of the nasty things he does. I do all the righteous things you want me to do. Okay, That's one man. Remember as Jesus tells the parable? What's the other man? The other man is a sinner. 
knows he's a sinner, beats his breast, and says, in English, God have mercy on me. In Greek, God make sacrifice for me, make atonement for me. Now, Jesus says very clearly that only one of the two men went home justified. Justified! Which of the two? The one who was filled with good works and trust in them, or the one who was filled with faith in Christ and trust in the atoning sacrifice? Yeah, the latter. So faith alone justifies. We see that in this particular parable of Jesus that we're referencing, but we see it elsewhere. We frankly see it everywhere in Jesus' preaching and actions, in Paul's preaching and actions. Okay, so that's a good question, and I'm glad we were able to address that kind of as these first things. All right, so you want your Lutheran study Bible. You, uh, there are other tools like you can use if you don't know Greek, but you kind of want to know Greek. There's um, Strong's Concordance and some online tools you can use that are free and easy enough to do. They're just a little painstaking, a little slow. Then if you're looking for a, gr- a good commentary, Andrew Doss. If you're looking for a good launch into the Lutheran Christian understanding of the doctrine of justification and all that it means. Luther. Luther's two volumes on Galatians. So far, so good? Okay. As we do, let's open up to page 2000 in your Lutheran study Bible, and we will simply get a a gist for the study Bible's way of presenting the isagogical matters relating to Galatians. Up at the top, you'll see a timeline, Paul's first missionary journey, dated at 47 to 48 AD. Again, just to orient yourself, Christ is raised, most scholars say, well, I mean, most Lutheran conservative scholars think either 30 or 33. That's his death and resurrection. So that gives you a sense for your a decade and a half, roughly, after that, where Paul is going on his first missionary journey. 49, the year 49 AD, is listed next on the timeline. Paul confronts Peter at Antioch. That's also the typical dating, and the dating the study Bible gives, in regard to uh, the council recorded in Acts 15. You'll have to pardon me. I'm trying to flip around in DOS and find his timeline. I think I just found it. Bingo. Then the study Bible dates next Paul's second missionary journey, 49 through 51 AD, and then has the dating of uh, Paul writing Galatians between 51 and 53 AD. Between his second and third missionary journey, his third missionary journey then, or maybe even overlapping a bit with it, his third missionary journey dated from 52 A.D. to 55 A.D. All right, one of the reasons why I don't find a ton of value in going through the nitty-gritty details here is when you open up a 
uh, Das and the Concordia Commentary, and one of our foremost scholars, if not our foremost scholar on these matters, guess what his timeline does? Disagrees at key points. And in fact, he points out key ways in which he disagrees with Dr. Michael Middendorf, who is our expert on Romans. So we have scholars that can't agree, and we have them disagreeing with the editors of the Lutheran Study Bible. Well, what do we make of this? The, the data given to us in the scriptures themselves simply can't lead to an absolutely conclusive timeline. Do we need a, an absolutely conclusive timeline in order to be saved? <laughs> of course not. In order to benefit from these writings? Of course not. In order to thoroughly understand these writings? Of course not. And so, that's why I hope you kind of take the dating and the timelines with a grain of salt. It's helpful insofar as it's helpful. It gives you a general sense for where things are falling and what might be happening. But in terms of nailing this down, it's simply not possible this side of heaven. God will tell us. He'll line it all out for us. Maybe that'll be the heavenly class 101. We'll be biblical chronology. Who knows? Let me just give you the gist of what uh, Das presents here, just so you can have it rattling around in your brain. All right, so Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and the birth of the church dated to A.D. 30. A minimum of a year from Pentecost for the, uh, for the events of Acts 1 through 8, which are prior to Paul's conversion and call. This would put the dating of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus at A.D. 32 to A.D. 35, with a later date being more likely. And then his ministry in Damascus and Arabia, which we're going to hit even in the first chapter, yes, I think so, the first chapter of Galatians, he's going to talk about his, his initial ministry after his conversion was to Damascus and Arabia. That's going to be dated from A.D. 35 to 37. Then you have his first Jerusalem visit in A.D. 37. This is where he spends, I forget what it is, 14 or 15 days with St. Peter. Okay, then from there, he goes off and has his ministry in Tarsus and Cilicia. Then you have your, his second Jerusalem visit. This is on account of the famine. and There's an informational meeting that takes place. This is dated to A.D. 45 and 47. His first missionary journey then, um, to Cilicia and southern Galatia, A.D. 46 through 47 or 47 through 48. So you can only see a slight divergence there from what's proposed by the Lutheran Study Bible. Possibly it's identical. You have a return to Antioch for several months to a year, and then you have the conflict with Peter, which we're going to hear about in Galatians chapter 2. You have a period of time after which similar issues emerge in Galatia. And then you're going to have the letter to Galatians written. So in other words, what is the dating of the letter to Galatians according to Doss's timeline? Well, 46-47, 47-48, or somewhere shortly thereafter. But that's going to be different than Paul writing Galatians in AD 51-53. 
Likewise, you're going to have the third Jerusalem visit or conference in Acts 15 that I just mentioned in AD 48 or 49. So that's the, uh, actually that's going to be similar. That's going to be, yeah, that's going to be just similar. Okay, so in other words, it's putting Galatians before that council where it's hard to say exactly from the Lutheran Study Bible timeline, but I think it would be safe to say that it's going to put it after the council, since the council is usually dated at AD 49, and here Paul read in Galatians at 51 through 53. So, again, what do we make of this? These are generalizations, and nobody knows for certain. Make sense? All right, And then that kind of sets one of the limitations, too, for when we're digging around in Acts and trying to find parallels, and scholars will even take us more broadly into the other epistles, and what's he writing when, and how does that affect his theology? I frankly think that you should take all of it with a grain of salt, because it's all predicated upon minor divergences of opinions that then, if you're going to try to make some thesis out of it, can manifest in major divergence in terms of thesis of what you think is going on. All right. Well, that gives us a sense for the timeline. Any questions on that, at least at this point? We're okay? All right. So, who are the Galatians? And we've got two different answers that I'll give you for that, okay? So, the first is Um, The traditional view has been that Paul was writing to a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles um, who are Christians. And you'll be able to see reason in the text why that seems to be the case. Das, who is kind of our expert, thinks that it tended to be Gentiles more than Jews. That makes a lot of sense just superficially because if you know anything about Galatians, you know that the teachers who wrote in after Paul were trying to get them to be what? Circumcised. Well, that would presume then they're Gentiles. So that makes a lot of sense. And that would be personally the way I lean is you're talking at l- about a significant portion, probably the majority of them being Gentile converts to Christianity as opposed to Jewish controverts, uh, converts to Christianity. Make sense? Okay. This was enlightening. Let me find this quick. I had to reread it several times because I could hardly believe it. So who are the Galatians? Now, this is interesting. So, uh, at least I think it's interesting. The name Galatians comes from Gauls. Greek writers used Galatae or Galatians interchangeably with Kelpi or Kelpoi, Celts or Celts. Okay, I don't know. The Celtics are in the, uh, so is it, is C-E-L-T, is that Celt or Celt? Okay, we're going to go with Celt then. So, so, yeah, so get this again. Galatians is the same as Gauls. Gauls is the same as Kelpi or Kelpoi, Celts. 
Latin writers did not distinguish Galatae or Galli and Celtae. The Galatians were originally Celts who emerged as an identifiable people group or people around 500 BC in the Danube River basin of Central Europe. In search of land, they migrated to Switzerland, southern Germany, northern Italy, France, Britain, the Balkans, and Asia Minor. Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, is the realm in which we're talking about Galatia. So we're related to them. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So people of the European descent are maybe somehow related to the Galatians. Now, this information is, of course, talking about uh, the migration that took place 500 BC. So 500-some years. I mean, and to what extent does intermarrying and everything else change the dynamics. I mean, 500 years is a long time, but it is interesting that the Gentiles who were there were originally Celts. All right. So that's kind of the first shocker. Yes, and then, of course, I don't mean to belabor the details, certainly not get bogged down into them, but then there's always this argument is as to whether it's the Galatians of the north, the northern cities of Galatia, or the southern cities of Galatia to which Paul is writing, and there's a great big argument about that, and both people, both sides think that they find the argument in Acts. Of course, neither of them do, and that just proves my thesis that you can't know any of this ever definitively, so don't get bent out of shape about it. It doesn't matter anyway. Uh, and Das, the Lutheran Study Bible, is going to say South Galatia. That's to whom we are writing. There is a map on page 1886. Boy, I hope that's right. Yeah, thankfully. 1886. And if you have a sticky note or an extra bookmark or a scrap of paper or something, you may want to put it there. I should follow my own advice on that one. Uh, this, is, this is probably the best map that the Lutheran Study Bible gives us. Um, and you're going to see here Paul's various missionary journeys uh, charted out. But you're also going to see then, um, if you're on page 1886, you're going to see, if you go over to the right-hand side, you're going to see Syria. And then as you go up north, you're going to see Cilicia. This is in all caps. Cappadocia. And then as you start to go west, you're going to see Galatia. Do you see that? Okay, now Galatia is a region up north, as I said, that heads towards, in this map, Bithynia and Pontus. But the southern region of Galatia, as a general rule, kind of includes Iconium, Lystra, Perga, Italia, and then generally to uh, Pisidian Antioch. Now, one thing I'll point out just as a complete digression and tangent is you see Antioch Pisidian. If you go to the east and then just a click or two down south, you're going to see another Antioch. Underneath it, Syrian. So 
this is why there's some confusion biblically, but, you know, when you see the word Antioch or Syrian Antioch. Usually, Syrian Antioch is, or, or Pisidian, or Antioch Pisidia or Pisidian Antioch. Usually, there's some kind of distinction being made there. Um, Antioch, for Pauline purposes, uh, generally, Syrian Antioch is the home base uh, uh, of Paul's ministry. You can see, for example, as you even look at the missionary journeys, that at least two of them, trying to look here on the fly, yeah, at least two of them begin in uh, Syrian Antioch. Okay, so we've identified where we think these people are in Galatia. We think the south, and we've identified some of the cities. Uh, if, you were look, if you were to want to know in the, like in the scriptures what these cities are, the, referen- would, the reference would be found in Acts 13 and 14. There's the cities listed of southern Galatia. All right, that gives us a sense for when it is written to whom it is written. Right? All right. How about some information about these false teachers who have come behind St. Paul telling everyone they need to be circumcised? What do we make of them? What do we even call them? For the most part, they have been called, at least since the Reformation, legalists or Judaizers. I frequently refer to them as Judaizers. Your study Bible will, in fact, refer to them as both legalists and Judaizers. But in scholarship, and Das points this out, there's some shift away from that to other nomenclature, just because that becomes laden with all kinds of ideas that might not, in fact, be accurate. It's a little more subtle than those terms might dictate. But anyway, you'll still hear me use the term Judaizers. Das likes the idea of calling them rivals. I think, and that's fine. I'm not going to disagree with that. I could care less. But in terms of what Paul first calls them, if you go, he, he talks about those who are troubling you. That's his first use of language. So maybe you should call them the troublers. Maybe that would be the most biblical. The troublers. Okay, who are these folks. Let me try to give you just a little bit of what Das has to say. In regard to the problem being addressed, Das says, Paul, for his part, never identifies a problem with quote-unquote works righteousness as such. You don't find that language. In other words, it's more sophisticated than that or or more detailed, uh, more subtle. His, Paul's, concern is far more fundamental. The law simply does not save. God saves only through the work of Jesus Christ. So, indeed, the Jews of Paul's day were of varying convictions on the role of works. Rarely, however, did they think that a person must obey God's law perfectly to be saved. One finds this perspective in a handful of apocalyptic documents, either from the Diaspora or after the war against Rome, AD 66 through 70. The vast majority of Jews were of the position that God saved the people of Israel at the point of his election of the people. 
Their observance of the law was simply a confession and response to God's gracious election. And by here we mean law in the broadest sense. We mean law including circumcision. And what we would think of as the ceremonial laws. So circumcision, the Jewish uh, liturgical calendar, um, various prescriptions in terms of what to eat and when and what not to eat and when. Um, as well as the sacrificial system. Okay? So in other words, what Das is doing is showing us that the Old Testament ethos and the ethos of most Jewish people in the first century was, hey, God elected us. That's where our salvation lies. And then God, as God's elected people, he lays out this whole program for how we live in distinction to the ethne, the nations of the world. Does that make sense? Okay. Das continues... They, that is, the majority of Jews of this time period, recognized that their obedience was not perfect, but relied on God's mercy and repentance and perhaps also atoning sacrifice. The Jews did not typically agonize over their sins. The rival teachers at Galatia viewed Moses' law and faith in or of Christ as complementary. They did not deny Christ's saving work, Paul, however, realized that their pressure on the Gentiles to observe the law effectively rendered the law as of the same importance as faith in or of Christ for salvation. They were demanding that the Gentiles observe the law as somehow necessary. In doing so, they had, whether intentionally or not, denied Christ's saving work as sufficient for a person's salvation. Okay, so then, who are these troublers or rivals? These are men who came in after St. Paul. They are Jewish converts to Christianity. They're saying, Paul, everything Paul said was exactly right. You are saved by Christ. But as God saved people... You should live the way God's people live. You should be circumcised, observe the calendar and the dietary laws, um, and, and live as a matter that culturally separates you from the nations. And this is put for, like, this you should really gets translated as you must. That's what Paul's objecting to. Now, from that, we can draw all kinds of conclusions. So, saying anything other than Christ as being necessary, Christ plus something, is clearly an error. But what we want to see right off the bat is that that is a kind of interpretive point we're making. It's a valid point, but it's an interpretive point. Paul isn't dealing with Roman Catholicism of the 16th century Um, Paul isn't dealing with the questions we might be dealing with today. So the very first thing we want to do is just get clear, what is the situation Paul is dealing with? What is it that he's saying? What does that mean? And then what can we take from that that applies to our own questions? Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so in the rivals or troublers, we have uh, not legalists in the strict sense of the word, 
who are saying, hey, it's Christ plus your works that gets you into heaven. They're saying, yeah, 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 it's Christ, but now as God's people in the Messiah, in Christ, this is how you must live. Let me see if there's anything else from Das that would... Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, this is interesting. And again, I, I kind of against this 20th century ham-fisted Lutheran understanding of Galatians. And that is... Um, let me just read Das to you here. Um, Paul need, uh, must, therefore, devote substantial space in the letter to how Christians are to live. All right, so after he's articulated how it is we're saved, not not by Christ and living as a Jew, but by Christ alone, the question obviously arises, well, how then do we live? And that's precisely why Paul in chapter 15, verse 13, through chapter 6, verse 10, why he spends so much time describing how it is that Christians are to live. So you can see then, like, I think if you're reading this in a ham-fisted way, you're like, well, Paul's just doing the doctrine of justification. At the end, he just tacks on this random exhortation and different laws and morals. Well, that makes no sense. Why would he do that? But the question comes into focus, and the answer comes into focus all the more, when you see that the rivals are saying, hey, it's Christ that saves you, but you have to live as a Jew, Paul comes in and says, no, it's Christ that saves you, not living as a Jew. How then should we live? Like this. And that's how the epistle ends. Makes perfect sense. So I think Das here is absolutely to be commended. It's exactly what's going on. He continues, the positive instructions are likely a response to the rival guidance from Moses' law. The rivals may even have faulted Paul for inadequate instruction in the Christian life. Paul will respond in chapter 5, verse 13, through chapter 6, verse 10, with the power of God's Spirit, the only effective solution to the power of the flesh. The apostle is not overly detailed in his comments. For example, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Quoting from chapter 5, 22 through 23. You recognize these as the fruits of the Spirit. So, how then should we live? Paul's not like, well, on Monday you do this, and on Friday you do this, and in December you do that. That's not the point. The point is that you are, you are not required to live according to the Jewish way and their custom. How then are we to live? It's very general. These general principles, like the fruit of the Spirit. Now, Das continues, The point is that those living by the Spirit will thereby fulfill the law, that is, the law of Christ. So, what is the law of Christ? Well, it's what we take to be the moral law, codified in the Ten Commandments. So, that's why the goal of life is to to live in the Spirit according to the Ten Commandments, carrying out our vocations and duties in life. It's exactly what Luther says in the large catechism. And it's exactly what Paul says at the end of Galatians. 
So Das continues in response to the rival's teaching. Then Paul is not only concerned with how one enters right relationship with God. That's the question of justification, but also with the nature of the ongoing Christian life. And that's what we would call sanctification. That's why in Galatians you see both. Just like in Luther you see both, if you're reading him correctly. All right, the rest of it I think would be better to get into once we're actually into the text. Because one of the major themes we're going to see in Galatians 2, even perhaps uh, more abundantly than a kind of legal frame of justification and a kind of forensic courtroom scene of justification, even more prevalent thematically through Galatians is the idea of new creation. In fact, Paul's understanding of why we don't follow the Jewish customs anymore is that that all belongs to the past age. We're going to get into this. Okay, This is an abstract way of thinking from our vantage point, but it's that the old age, the old ways, the way of living according to the Jewish law, that is past. The new has come in Christ Jesus, and the new way of living is not by the works of the law, but by the fruits of the Spirit. And the fruits of the Spirit manifest in what we would call the natural law, or the eternal will of God. We're dropping here from the Ten Commandments the specifics like worship on the Sabbath, Saturday, and um, other such specificities within those commandments. But we're seeing that what they teach in terms of the natural moral law is precisely the content of the fruit of the Spirit and what the Spirit drives us toward and what the Spirit drives us against, namely living contrary to the natural law as the nations are, the unbelievers are. Okay, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a fair statement. Mm-hmm. They both follow uh, very similar outlines. If you, if you have a question in Galatians, frequently it's not a bad idea to go to Romans and try to find the counterpart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I think what you find in Romans is a less situational theology. He's writing to Rome. I, don't, I think at that point he hasn't been to Rome. He doesn't know the lay of the land you get a much more kind of calm, um, uh, indifferent, not in the sense that he doesn't care, but indifferent in the sense that it's not a particular situation that's causing him to write. So you get a more cool-headed, systematic laying out of the fundamental teachings of Christianity and Romans. You get the same thing here, but it's obviously very acutely situational or occasional or pastoral. He's got this theology, but he needs them to get it now. In fact, if you, can, if you contrast Galatians with the other Pauline epistles, he spends all this time like, you know, glorifying God and praising and praying and doing doxologies in his intro. He does a very short greeting, and then he says... Thamazo, that is to say, um, I am astonished that you have fallen, right? And so just 
I mean, that's the. It, it's hard to it's hard to overstate how much of a smack in the face this would have been when this is being read out loud. You know, here's who I am. The brothers are with me. To all of you, the churches, grace and peace. I can't believe it. (laughs) Yeah, so Galatians really stands out in that way, that it's a situational, occasional opportunity where Paul is impassioned, not dispassionate, not indifferent, but passionate and um, very much personally invested in the outcome of this letter. Yeah, please. That's when he studied Galatians and really got excited about the content. How bad was the Latin Vulgate that people didn't understand this intuitively before before Luther? Because he was really the first one that came out with uh, the power of this. Or you disagree with? Well, I, yeah, I don't know. I am. Um, you're, you're. My comments maybe take with a grain of salt, but. Uh, in my memory, Luther was known to be better with Hebrew than with Greek. Uh, in his lectures, he rarely, if ever, references Greek technicals. Uh, it's just not really part of his program. What he sees is a what he sees is um, what had occurred, and there's lots of different reasons for this. But what had occurred in medieval Western Christendom is this idea that Moses came to give us the law, the Decalogue, which has to do with external righteousness. And what Jesus came to do, now you can already see that the proof text for this bad theology would be misreading the Sermon on the Mount, What Christ came to do was teach us not only external morality, but morality of the heart. Okay, So you can think, for example, Jesus saying, You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause or calls his brother fool is guilty of the council, is guilty of hellfire, etc. I'm paraphrasing here to say the least. Okay, or you have heard it said, you should not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who lusts after a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so how this got to be understood in medieval Western Christendom is uh, Moses came to give us an external law. Christ came to give us an internal law. The righteousness of Moses is one thing. The righteousness of Christ is like tenfold that. All right? Now, if you're taught that this is Christian righteousness, righteousness not just externally of your deeds, but righteousness of your thoughts, righteousness of your heart, you can see how crushing this is. So Jesus comes to be viewed as this impossible judge. You would love Moses more than you'd love Christ. He's this impossibly harsh judge saying, this is, your, this is the righteousness that's required for you to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, what then is the gospel? The gospel is quad facari in Do that which is within you. 
Or what would we say? Do your best and let God do the rest. That's the gospel. See any problems with that? What on earth is my best? And when have I ever done it? And so you live in perpetual fear. And there is no other righteousness of Christ. There is, there is no understanding of the righteousness of Christ apart from... Uh, uh, do it. Be righteous. And so now you can see then how... Well, okay, if doing my best and God will do the rest, what on earth is my best? How could I ever know that I've done it? Is a terrifying thought. Then comes along the papacy and the magisterium of the church saying... Yeah, but there are these holy saints who have, who have done their duty and f- fulfilled this righteousness of Christ, and they've got extra. Do you want some of that extra into your account? And you're like, take my money now. And that's indulgences. I am scared to death for my eternal salvation, for the eternal salvation of my family. We can't possibly know that we've made it. How on earth do we have any sense whatsoever that we're okay? And it's like, well, you're baptized, so you're, you're in. Yeah, but how do I know I'm not going to spend a billion years in purgatory? You don't. But we've got these extra credits for you over here, and all, and we've got them on a 30% off sale. So are you interested? Yes. That's it. That's it. That's the horizon. We're not living in a time where you've got five, 15 different versions of the Bible on your iPhone apps, or you've got, you just have to Google in a verse, and there it is. Nobody's got Bibles. Nobody's got personal Bibles. Um, the only people that do are very wealthy. Uh, literacy is probably higher than we all think, but it's still not what it is today. And you just can't look up this information. The church and the entire hierarchy of the church, there, there aren't denominations the way there are today. There isn't mobility the way there is today. You're born into a village, you live in that village, you go to the church, and this is what the church tells you the Bible says. That's it. That's it. So it's Luther painstakingly reading the scriptures, painstakingly reading the fathers, painstakingly reading others, comes to realize that there's another righteousness altogether and that Christ hasn't come as a second, greater, worse lawgiver than Moses. His righteousness is a righteousness credited to us by grace alone through faith alone. It's all and solely on account of him alone. It's all gratis. It's completely apart from our works. This other righteousness that God requires, that Christ requires in that part of the Sermon on the Mount is an impossibility. We cannot accomplish it. And so we're driven to him as our Savior. And then, of course, we see that in order to be internally righteousness, I have to be internally made new. I can't do that. But Christ does that in me through the preaching of his gospel, through the gift of the Spirit, such that my heart begins to change and begins to fill with new desires to where I have impulses that are in in accord with this law, not hating my brother, not lusting after everyone I see. Now, how perfect is that? Not. It's an uncompleted work until Christ brings it to completion. The old Adam still is within us. But now we've got two things. We've got recourse to this righteousness of Christ. And we've got a new power and ability within us as the Holy Spirit enlivens us to recognize these things, confess them, strive against them, and to whatever degree or not degree to make headway against them. So we then can see a a new man within us, as St. Paul will say. 
All right, so that hopefully paints a picture for of you, uh, for you of the medieval church and why the gospel was understood to be this terrible thing, why you would gladly pray to Mary or any other of the other saints before you'd pray to Jesus, who is exponentially more of Moses than Moses, exponentially more of, remember the terrors of Sinai? Well, Christ is tenfold Sinai. Why would you ever go to him? You would definitely go to his mom. She's nicer. You would definitely go to the saints. They too were sinners. And you can see how all of this makes perfect sense and you gladly be forking out for indulgences or everything else. It's concrete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's concrete. And it's really the only hope you have. I mean, that's it. The, I mean, what happens in the ancient world in a very different way is people can't believe that God is so gracious to forgive us in Christ Jesus. They can't believe that. Why can't they believe that? They don't have things like Tylenol and cell phones and air-conditioned automobiles. Life is suffering in a way that it isn't for us. And that's obvious. Okay? Um, in, a, in a sort of parallel but different way, medieval Christians, their struggle is they can't believe that God is in fact gracious. They can't believe that Christ is in fact loving and gentle and meek and mild and welcoming all who come to him and freely forgiving their sins. They can't believe this because the church has taught them that Christ is this tyrant of righteousness, this exponential Moses who's impossible, this one who sits on a holiness and a wrath even greater than that on on Sinai. So when the gospel comes, like, I mean, the true gospel now, you can see how this is just like either unbelievable, which is why so many remain Roman Catholic, or why this is like the greatest thing ever and you're instantly willing to die for it. And that's the Lutherans. And then I think you can see by contrast in our day and age, at least here in wealthy Southern California, everybody believes God is gracious. He's a good guy. I'm a good guy. We're all good guys. Yeah, yeah, I haven't done everything perfect, but whatever. I'll do my best and let God do the rest. There's a little parallel. But the idea is, is hey, God's a good guy. I'm a good guy. Everybody's working on good faith here. Good shake. About the only people that go into hell are uh, Hitler and the other political party. That's it. And that's kind of the American ethos, which is really weird because if you go out just proclaiming, like, God is love, God is grace, God is good, God forgives you, and Americans like, Okay, (laughs) I'll carry on then. Uh, So in our context, what is especially and apparently needed is the proclamation of the law before the gospel. Here's who you really are. Here's the wrath of God that is impending against you. Here's sickness and death and the loss of this entire golden and beautiful life that you've built coming any moment. But at most, a few decades away. What are you going to do? And, and such preaching as this, which is a preaching of the law, a preaching of repentance, which is what's needed f- so explicitly, first and foremost, in our culture, so that people are even ready to receive a forgiveness of sins in God that is an alleviation of his wrath and that is an undoing of impending death. Does that make sense? So that's why we Christians need to, I mean, for many, many reasons, grasp hold of the law, not only because this is the key to evangelism, but then it's the key 
uh, form and shape that our Christian lives will take. And we're going to see that at the end of Galatians. We're going to see that that's why Paul ends it. Like, how then shall we live if not by the Mosaic ceremonial law? Live like this. On what basis am I righteous before God? On the basis of Christ alone, not any of your works. So far, so good? All right, let's get into the text next week. The Lord be with you.